Welcome to Blockchain Unpacked. Blockchain Unpacked is a video cast and podcast series held in partnership between RegTech Associates and Crystal Blockchain. Join Jason Baud and Marina Kaustova every month and explore the real-world impact of criminal activity beyond the blockchain. During the series, we will introduce you to a range of experts who will help analyze regulatory effectiveness and share the latest news, trends and predictions in a digestible format to keep you in the know. Hello, I'm Jason Baud, CEO of RegTech Associates, and welcome to Blockchain Unpacked. This show features expert insights from prominent leaders in the blockchain, regulatory and technology industries. And I'm delighted to be co-hosting this new show with Marina Kostova, CEO of Crystal Blockchain. Marina and I will kick off by covering some of the developments in the Web3 space that caught our eye in the past few weeks. We'll then be joined by this week's special guest, Martin Maloney, Secretary General of IOSCO. So Marina, it's great to see you again. How are you and what's been going on in your world? Hello, hello everyone and hello Jason. Thank you for having me again on this podcast. It's a pleasure being here together with you. Um, so yeah, a lot is happening on our side. Uh, a lot of conferences, our company is visiting a lot of these events happening in Europe and in APAC, uh, but also there's very hard work going on right now in the background because we are preparing a major update for Crystal, where we are integrating Polygon, uh, the layer two solution for Ethereum uh, into our solution. So Polygon is fantastic, right? Everyone loves it. It's lower fees, uh, switcher transaction, and users are raving about that. And guess what? Uh, there are much more active users in Polygon than there is on Ethereum at this moment. But uh, let me tell you, bringing transparency to layer two blockchain, that's a very big technical challenge for any analytics um, uh, company. So we have to dig deep, really deep into the AI technologies to speed up attributions on these larger scale protocols. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's the way how we ensure compliance in this space. And we're excited about that. And uh, it's uh, uh, very obvious that, you know, deploying better compliance for level two solutions means calling for better AI implementation. So these updates are next in line. And I guess uh, that's what blockchain analytics are going to be about uh, in 2024. That's amazing. Congratulations. Um, we we talked, I think, last time on the show, right, about the huge amount of engineering work that has to go in, um, you know, to, to keep your customers up to date with the, the growing sort of crypto and DeFi worlds. Well, just, just for our listeners' benefit, um, I mean, Polygon's one of the major layer twos, right? If, if not the major major one, it's, you know, the one that everyone's talking about. Um, how do you make that decision? Is that is that from customer demand? Is that from the, the trends in the market? You know, why Polygon? Why that one? Why not another layer two? Yeah, of course, it's always a decision, you know, where you deploy your resources, because if you're integrating this on the most, uh, uh, the deepest possible level, that means that the team hardly works on that very, uh, for like three or four months in a row. Um, so yeah, of course, uh, our goal is to make sure that uh, by picking up this particular protocol, we're serving the better uh, part of the audience, the most part of the audience that's utilizing them. So the number of transactions combined with the number of the users is a critical um, uh critical metric for us, uh, but also, you know, existing customers are always thinking about how to expand their presence and what other protocols to connect. Uh, so of course we are listening to them very closely as well. Yeah. Amazing. And um, I've got to remind you, I don't know if you remember in our last show, it was just prior to you going to Money 2020 out in Singapore. And I had massive FOMO because I wasn't going. So just, just for in it, just in like 30 seconds or a minute, 
tell tell me about that show. It was huge, right? It, it was it was like one of the biggest in the of the year. Oh yes, yes, yes. It was huge. It was much bigger than it was last time. Um, uh, I think we there had more than ten thousand uh, uh, visitors there, and in general, I had the vibe of you know um, cryptocurrency events that were happening in the United States back in 2017, 2018, and uh, this vibe was you know it was even um, uh, enhanced or how to say amplified by the fact that regulators in this region are also very um, uh, vigilant at this moment, and mm. especially right. At the middle of the event, there was a cease and desist order issued towards one of the companies that was standing there with the book. Um, and, you know, this uh, whole thing, it's like uh, combined with a lot of people visiting there, a lot of uh, um, activities running on the stage. For example, Balaji Srinivasan was uh, interviewing CZ, not in person, but still, you know, that was a big, yeah, big yeah. thing also. So, yeah, it's like uh, uh, nice, ni nice to see a lot of activity happening there. And also, it's good to see that Regulators are observing this space very closely. Yeah, oh, amazing. Yeah, it, I uh, was following following your updates. Even though I yeah. wanted to turn the the social feed off. So uh, <laughs> yeah, and of course the the crystal blockchain parties that are somewhat legendary at these events <laughs> looks look like a lot of fun. Massive massive FOMO uh, on that. So um, and what what else have has, has been going on? What what else have you been sort of focusing on recently? Yeah, I wanted to speak about one more thing. Uh, recently, Coindesk uh, posted my article about uh, the challenges that are awaiting blockchain analytics industry. And uh, of course, we everyone's expanding their coverage and there are more and more risks to be identified in the digital asset space. Um, I see an interesting uh, tendency uh, to actually protect the effectiveness of compliance versus the costs you know, spent on compliance. And that sometimes takes, you know, this intention takes a very weird and dangerous form. Um, as for example, there has been launched an intelligence exchange where you may be paid bounty if you are providing certain off-chain or on-chain data attribution. So, uh, of course, uh, this causes many, many, many questions. And but most importantly, it uh, you know asks a very valid, uh, uh, raises a very valid problem, like what data uh, is actually you know can be relied upon. Um, on-chain data is out in the open, okay, but uh, you know, then you have a lot of like public forums, and everyone on Twitter is a you know investigator these days. So you can take this as a cue, but if you get it really wrong, the whole blockchain analytics space, and particularly you know a legal system that relies on this data, can really take a hit. So um, and I see that uh, our colleagues, you know, from the space um, are actually uh, being brought, you know, under the spotlight and asked like to explain how the algorithms are working, how the attribution is working. And especially when, you know, uh, potentially you have to defend these uh, being asked by uh, people who are being uh, convinced of being uh, maliciously, you know, developing malicious protocols or something like that, um, that becomes a real problem. It really takes a lot of effort to explain to the judges, to explain to the courts how these technological systems, very complicated systems work. So, yeah, I mean, uh, the stakes are very high right now, and blockchain analytics companies actually have to uh, do a big, big job. And uh, uh, linking uh, a blockchain activity to real-world actions uh, is not a walk in the park. And it's not just enough to accept, you know, someone's word. You really need to deploy a lot of resources into that. And I'm a big believer that better adoption of AI will be a game changer here. 
Um, and especially because we expect the next round of crypto activity being driven by level twos, where we see magnitudes more transactions, you know, happening um, uh, in very soon, you know, in the nearest future. So really, that's a really fascinating topic because on one side you've got, you know, uh, this, you know, transparent and open sort of uh, architecture, and you've got companies like Crystal adding lots of attribution data, using lots of technology to uncover and match and, you know, and then that being used for really good, you know, really good purpose, right? Catching criminals, ensuring better compliance, etc. But that, that, that role of that, you know, creating that data set with attribution data and people that are using it comes with a responsibility, right? And on one hand, you know, you, you want, you'd like to think that the more open that you, you know, people will use open data for good, but this is a really good example of people using open data, not for good or for their own good, but not for the good of society, you know, and there's so much, so many, so many other sort of examples of that, where you've got sort of hacking as a service and compromised data places that, yeah, I mean, it's a really worrying trend and getting that balance between openness, transparency, plus adding lots of value to the open transparency data like Crystal do, but you need to protect it, right? You need to give it to the right people and, and it needs to be right. And, and there isn't, you know, I think, I think people probably don't realize what you have to go through to get that data right. And obviously putting it in a, in a court of law uh is is the ultimate test of that and getting a prosecution so yeah it's um let's make sure we post the reference to your article marina it sounds yeah, yeah. Uh, in the show notes it sounds like a really uh really interesting space we should keep an eye on yeah for me it's uh it might be a very long-term project that i'm like uh looking at this space uh changing you know significantly over the next year so yeah i think i'm going to be speaking more and more about that <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, but uh, what about you, Jason? A lot is happening with RegTech Associates recently. Like, tell us more about that. Yeah, thank you. So uh, incredibly busy at the moment. Uh, but one thing that I wanted to raise people's attention for is uh, we're, we, we've been for a while almost like banging the drum of how regulatory technology should be adopted in the industry and how that creates better outcomes for society and how it how it creates better outcomes for, for compliance and regulation as a whole. And a couple of years ago, we wrote a report uh, commissioned by the City of London uh, Corporation, and we, we uncovered a lot of barriers, you know, education, um, lack of awareness, um, you know, concerns about whether the regulator will allow you to use technology to meet a, a compliance obligation. And, um, two years on from that report we, we've been commissioned again to then um actually try and shine a positive light again marina we're always trying to shine positive lights on things right as well as talking about the bad stuff in society so so we're actually the city of london have issued a call for input for anybody in the regulatory technology or risk technology space to tell to tell them about successful implementations of technology that have that have had benefits, concrete benefits to regulated institutions that could be anything. It could be a fintech, it could be a, an, uh, an asset manager, it could be a, you know, a crypto exchange, it could be any, any sort of thing in the regulated sector. Um, and how technologies really had a positive and concrete sort of benefit in, in creating better outcomes for society and having ideally a, you know, a great ROI for the client as well. So, you know, this is my little plea to anybody listening to the show. If if you've got a if you've got a use case with a, a UK 
financial institution you want to shout about, please um, either check out the City of London Corporation or RegTech Associates LinkedIn page, or just Google um, City of London RegTech Success, and uh, you'll find the links. Uh, I think the deadline is a couple of weeks away, so uh, 20th of October. And uh, I'm pretty sure that you know, Crystal are going to be submitting hopefully a use case. You, you've done quite a lot in this in, in the UK market, right, Marina? Oh, yeah. You know, well, for all my crypto life since 2015, I'm seeing the trust and transparency attract investors and long term audience. And right now, trust and transparency even more, you know, powered up by regulations. And especially if you expand geographically, you really have to take into consideration these requirements that might be not fully aligned. And this is how I see compliance and reg tech, you know, powering up the growth of the business. And uh, we also see some examples of our customers working with us, particularly in this direction on a very long-term project. Uh, there's a company, UK-based company, um, Radix uh, Protocol, and we've been working with them for two years already to make sure that um, their protocol is compliant and transparent for all the participants, you know, day one from the launch. And they just updated their mainnet, mainnet to Weblone um, on 27th or 28th of September uh, last week. Um, and uh, yeah, this is a, a conclusion of a very long-term project, which is um, um, just very important for me because this is an example of how the protocol can think, uh, in, you know, for how to help its users understanding mm -hmm. that the space is uh, definitely going to be regulated, definitely going to be um, the regulations and the requirements are going to be tighter. So mm -hmm. um, it is a case when technological backbone um, really uh, promotes and helps its future users. Um, yeah, I think I think we can we can we can explain more of that in one of the applications or recommend Radix maybe to step in for that uh, application. Amazing. Yeah, it'd be really good to have something in the sort of uh, crypto and, and sort of protocol yep. uh, side of the Web3 industry as a as a use case, because there's probably a lot of people that talk about uh, implementations of, you know, name screening or financial crime or maybe market surveillance. It would be good to to get a real a real live implementation use case of something that's so much work's gone into almost like this product pre-launch in a brand new technology space. I think that would really that would really be a welcome addition. I look forward to seeing that. That's true. That's true. That's true. All right. Anything? Anything else that you interesting that you have seen? Yeah, just a little one. This is a bit of a late addition for me in the show. In fact, uh, I think eight or nine o'clock last night, I was reading this paper um, uh, that I'd seen published a couple of days ago, and, and it's the um, Bank of International Settlements. Um, I'm going to call them BIS because it's less of a mouthful. They've been working and have just published a paper on project atlas and it's a project to build a data platform in partnership between bis and two central banks uh, so the central bank of um of germany and the, the netherlands um are participating in this project and the project um gathers off-chain data from crypto exchanges and combines it with on-chain data from public blockchains and um primarily focus on the bitcoin network um what they do is is work out the expected location i put that in in uh, in quotes people listening uh rather than watching won't understand that i'm doing these funny speech mark symbols with my hands but anyway um so they take the expected location of the exchange as a proxy for where the capital is flowing in and out um and then what they're doing is um uh 
pulling together all the data so they can map the the transactional flows uh, across the Bitcoin network. And they've got some really interesting visuals, um, visualizations of that where they've got, you know, the flows shown as thicker or thinner lines around a, a globe um, sort of visual. And um, albeit the data is not entirely accurate when you because you're having to sort of take this expected location of the exchange. Um, it's a really good starting point for looking at um, central exchange activity on the network. And the project was really driven by, I think, some fear and uncertainty from central banks about the potential contagion risk of crypto and the wider DeFi, DeFi markets and also the need for central banks to be able to measure how the crypto and DeFi markets are evolving. It's a really good white paper on it. Again, we'll put it in the in the show notes. But the the code, the data, the techniques, the platforms that um, they've used in this project are going to be there for other central banks to utilize. Uh, the project makes use of open source and also private sort of company technology. Uh, and it also talks about how uh, it collects attribution data. You know, and we've been we touched on attribution data already, right? So I, I can't help thinking that, um, you know, they're going to be facing similar problems that your engineering teams will probably face, Marina, over the years. And so finally, the interesting conclusion for me is that the report, um, central central banks, supervisors, policymakers, and the wider regulatory community really lack the type of data that they need to focus on systemic risk for central bank use cases. Um, and this project really allowed them to model and to understand those risks. It's also clear to me that I think some of the skills that private companies probably have gained could be very useful to the central banks and the um, and people like Bank of International Settlements. So, yeah, um, bit of bit of a geek out there for me on a few minutes. And, but, yeah, really fascinating project. <laughs> Yeah, true. And uh, I think uh, that very much uh, is connected to the initiative uh, launched by International Monetary Fund a while ago, I think half a year ago, uh, when they uh, stated publicly that they're interested in building uh, the uh, platform, uh, which will be facilitating uh, interactions between uh, governments and countries uh, in CBDCs, right? So you can... If you cannot just not put uh, uh, CBDCs and digital assets on this map when you're assessing, you know, on a global scale what's going on. And of course, this is a very strong base to understand, again, risks and uh, uh, the, um, uh, um, the potential effect, you know, of these um, uh, interactions. Um, and uh, I must say that for a while already, we see huge interest coming uh, from traditional finance, TradFi's, we call it, for such solutions for such information. I think it's not a secret for anyone right now that BlackRock uh, has already or is developing some version of, you know, Aladdin for crypto and given the, you know, magnitude of their operations and the scale of their um, uh, yeah, trading operations, uh, it's very clear that they're interested exactly to observe that, you know, how, um, um, how these flows are running between the countries, between the biggest uh, players uh, uh, located within the countries. And also from the other perspective, uh, this is a stepping stone for every supervisory authority, for every regulator, when before they deploy any kind of regulation to understand exactly what's happening within the perimeter of their observation and with the, you know, within the ecosystem, who are they interacting with, what the counterparties are doing, how this whole is interconnected. 
before again you make any like rapid steps forward. And uh, um, we've been working with some supervisory authorities uh, in this year and previous year, providing exactly this information, um, which uh, served as an important, again, first step uh, to understand what's going on uh, uh, within the uh, jurisdiction um, before, again, any action is taken. So yeah, I'd say that, uh, yeah, I think it's very, this gap can be br bridged only by um, public-private partner, partnerships, you know, yeah. built uh, in the right way. So, um, yeah, um, this, uh, this data is very critical and uh, I'm, I'm happy to see more and more of that, you know, available uh, for uh, in the form of such reports, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah, I 100% agree, Marina. I, it's really interesting as well seeing people's reactions to this type of report as well, because a couple of people I've sort of connected with said oh this is great but they're not sharing any of it we know this this is not helpful they're not sharing any of this data well you know to to the point we talked about earlier right you've got to have mm -hmm. some responsibility when you create yeah. these data sets and you augment them with additional data and you run model and analysis now you know a BlackRock going to be sharing their data well why should central banks be at this stage sharing data with the public so i've got some sympathy really on the regulators from from the regulatory perspective and the central bank and bis perspective they've published a good white paper it tells you how they've gone about it it tells you mm -hmm. what they've done are they going to share that underlying platform with the public no should they probably not right yeah. you know it's there to inform them to educate them they have to learn um, and they have a responsibility to supervise and keep a, you know, a globally systemic, um, you know, uh, balance in, in, the, in the risk. So, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what else they do. I think they're going to expand the project out into sort of Ethereum more in the future. Let, let's hope so. Fingers crossed. Great. Well, listen, it, feel, it feels like we've been going quite a while on that discussion. So I think now is the perfect time to bring in this week's guest. So Martin Maloney joined the International Organizations of Security Commissions, or IOSCO, in September 2021 as Secretary General. And prior to IOSCO, Martin was Director General of the Jersey Financial Services Commission. Before that, a special advisor on risk and regulation to the Central Bank of Ireland, where he also headed up many divisions across organization in a 16-year tenure and prior to the central bank of ireland martin worked in the department of justice the irish competition authority and spent 10 years working in the irish department of finance martin great to see you again welcome to the show first and foremost how are you doing what's been going on in your world in the Jason, past few weeks and months good to see you good to see you marina how are you uh, very interesting conversation. I liked all the sympathy for regulators and central bankers. That's good. I like that. We could do a bit more of that. Um, uh, it doesn't happen very often, so uh, we've started off well. What's going on in our world? Well, I guess connected to yourselves, we're doing a lot of work, as you know, on crypto, but actually it's not our only topic at the moment. We're doing a huge amount of work recently on sustainable finance, which is another big cutting area issue for, for us. And it's kind of interesting to be working on topics that um, requires you to think in a lot of new ways, you know, uh, and 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 uh, just sort of park the traditional way of doing things. So um, yeah, very busy at the moment, but very but very happily busy because I think we're we're doing okay on a couple of these fronts. I hope I don't sound too self-satisfied there, but I think we're doing okay. Uh, but you tell me in relation to to crypto in particular. Yeah, well, of course, we don't always we're not always sympathetic for to, to regulators and central banks. I'm only kidding. We we are. We you know we try and 
we try and show both sides of what's going on in the industry. So, you know, I'm really, really uh, excited to get into detail on, uh, on on some of the stuff that IOSCO are doing around the broader Web3 markets and regulations. But um, perhaps let's hand over to Marina to, to kick that off. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think what would be hugely valuable for our listeners is if uh, they can hear from yourself uh, the explanation on how IOSCO actually fits into this world of uh, regulating financial services. Um, yeah. So quick one minute lesson on global financial services uh, uh, regulatory standards. Uh, we kind of, we started off back in the 1980s and really got going, uh, IOSCO did, in the 1990s. And why did we ever come into existence? It was sort of linked to globalization, a huge amount of cross-border trading, lots of different uh, financial products being sold to, to customers in different countries. And the regulators thought, okay, we can't just do it on our own in an individual country anymore because we start to depend on other countries and what, what's mm -hmm. happening in their countries. So they developed this organization, IOSCO, and what we try to do is set standards for uh, uh, which can be met in different countries all around the world. And in order to do that, we try to get just about every country in the world as a member of the organization. And we're quite successful on that. We've got about 130 countries in the world, and that's pretty well, uh, well over 90% of all global financial product yeah. trading are our members. And that's what we do. We developed a set of standards called our 38 principles, which we developed in the 1990s and the 2000s. And then we find we have to constantly issue updates and, and advice to people because financial innovation is, is not just tech innovation, but financial innovation is a constant. It's always going on. And you're always wondering, okay, how does this new derivative fit in with that sort of principle that we articulate? So you've got to constantly work on, on updating it. And that keeps me in a job and keeps a few other people in a job as, as, as well because uh, finance is a never-ending area of, of, of innovation and change. I guess that requires a lot of uh, process of like monitoring, collecting feedback and interaction. Like uh, what is the process that IOSCO goes through actually to propose standards for digital assets? Yeah, yeah. So um, that's, a, that's a really good question because often people think, okay, you go off at a blank sheet of paper, yeah. you come up with the principles and then we apply them. Doesn't work like that. What actually happens is we wait. We wait until sectors and practices have developed a little bit. A couple of countries have thought about different ways of doing it. And then we do what we generally call a stock take, which is we just look at what the situation is, what are the products in this area that are out there, what are different regulators doing. And we try and bring that together. And it's almost like a puzzle to figure out what are the common principles that lie behind the way different countries are doing it? What are the common outcomes that they're all trying to achieve? And we will then try and put that together into a set of global recommendations. We'll publish that. We usually do it only after a lot of round tables where we bring interested parties into discussions with us. We'll publish that. We'll do a kind of a formal consultation process. We listen to what everybody says to it. We write up a feedback statement. We publish that as well so everybody can see what our responses were and our thinking was on, uh, on that. And then uh, we will publish a final version. So if you look at crypto, that's exactly what we did. We went through a phase. Uh, it was actually in March 2022 where uh, we thought, you know, this has kind of gone far enough. We've got to start put coming up with global standards. 
I actually used to be on the board of IOSCO uh, representing Europe back in 2017 when the ICO craze happened. And at that stage, I don't know if you remember the ICO craze, but at that stage, uh, there was an awful lot of stuff going on where a lot of people were losing a lot of money on weird and wonderful and brilliant ideas that were never actually going to happen. And so we were trying to say, look at these people losing all this money. It runs against the grain for securities regulators. That's what we're supposed to be here to stop. So we tried to get together and work together to, for regulators to get better at trying to stop the ICO craze. I'm going to say it came to an end because people were using a huge amount, losing a huge amount of money. But by the time we got to 2022, we thought we have to come back at this again. There's clearly a huge problem here. So we spent the summer of 2022 planning to start the sort of process I just started. And then just as we were about to begin, FTX happens. So you sort of think sometimes you're in the right place at the right time. Uh, wish it hadn't happened, but uh, at least we're prepared and ready to go. So we started that process. We start talking to everybody. We produced a draft consultation paper, which came out last May. And we're now working through all the responses we got. And I'm hoping in a few weeks time, we will actually issue our final conclusions on our standards. And I'm also hoping it'll be quite similar to what we originally uh, produced in last May. So you get the gist of what we were producing in relation to crypto. And the idea is that will set up a, a global baseline. Countries can look at that and in relation to what they're doing themselves, they can say, are we there? Are we not there? Have we got a gap? Uh, are we close? Are we far away? What are, what are the big issues in terms of trying to treat crypto the same way you treat any other asset that people can invest in and trying to protect the investors who are not in a good place, place to make strong decisions or just can't see what the intermediaries they're depending on are doing and just can't 100% trust them. We're trying to get to a position where Sometimes even in traditional finance, people lose money due to fraud. I don't know if you remember Bernie Madoff back in 2008 sort of stole a lot of people's money. It does happen. Uh, it's, but hopefully it happens less because of what we do. And we're trying to get to the same position in relation to crypto. Because to be honest with you, as you will know well, the numbers are not great in terms of the amount of money that's been lost by fraud and deceit in the, in the crypto sector. Fascinating insight into, I guess, the inner workings and decision-making, Martin. I guess back in 2017 when the ICO sort of boom was happening, um, you know, you never know at the time whether, you know, how long this is going to continue. And a fascinate, you know, fascinating insight to see, you know, how quickly could or should an organisation like IOSCO and, you know, with your convenient power across regulators step in, um, you know, it was a pretty nascent industry, right? You know, the blockchain industry being over 10 years old, that, you know, ICO boom and, and bust, if you if, if you can paraphrase it in that way, was a was a very thin slice, what, probably lasting, what, 12 months or so? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, we, we didn't stop it. It actually, it stopped itself because people yeah. just realized that, that most of these white papers are nonsense. And, and I, if I just keep pouring my money into them, I'm going to lose most of it. So... We tried to stop it, but it stopped itself. Thankfully, common sense stopped it. We're gonna we're gonna go into I think some of the um, perhaps the, the, the DeFi related recommendations mm -hmm. you've been making. But before we do that, perhaps just to to, to sort of finalise a bit of the story, you, you, the, the recommendations and the sets of principles that you publish then make their way down into the actual regulators, right? And and yeah. end up in terms of, of, of regulations and standards you know, uh, right. national competent authority, right? 
if you think about where countries are on this, you've got a couple of countries at one end of the spectrum, like um, uh, China or Egypt, uh, Qatar, uh, I think Morocco, and, and at one stage India, who, who were basically very close to or, or had banned holding uh, uh, crypto assets. And you can go all the way over to, let's say, Europe, which in, 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 in Mica is putting in place a bespoke regime to deal with this. And in between, you've got lots of countries that are in lots of different positions. So what we then try to do with countries after we develop a set of standards like this, and what we'll be trying to do next year with jurisdictions is to get into a dialogue and a conversation with them. So to get them to assess themselves against our standards, the IMF does assessments of, of large countries as well, and they would look to our standards and, and so on. Just try to get them to think about where are we, where are those gaps? And how long would it take us? Because the, the length of the legislative process is a really big issue for in, in a lot of countries. So if you look at, I don't know, the UK has changed the law recently, for example, in relation to marketing of crypto. How long did that take and what happens next? There's a big cycle there on how to fix things. So we like to then work with them in a, in a dialogue and try to get them all up to where we are. And sometimes they kind of need us to tap them on the shoulder and say, mm, you're, you're still falling a bit short and, uh, uh, and, and try to get them, get them there. But when you have such variety in how people want to respond to crypto, from, from people wanting to ban it to people wanting to develop bespoke regimes, some jurisdictions would like to become centers for, for crypto innovation. You've got all those different views, then you have to uh, have a lot of conversations with a lot of people, countries that have different goals and objectives in order to try to get these common standards in place. I don't think we'll get to really good common global practices and approaches for a good few years yet. It will take time for all this to sift down into the individual jurisdictions. It's a hard struggle to get this done, but uh, I'm but you know, you've got to take it one step at a time and actually us articulating the principles is just the first step. Mm -hmm. Maybe I have a follow-up question then. Um, sure. What kind of local uh, supervisory authorities or authorities in general are uh, um, responsible for supporting you in this process, like um, locally? Yeah, it's interesting that w we deal mainly with the securities regulators. So these <laughs> are the, the the whoever has a mandate to deal with people who either hold your money or organize traded markets. You also, of course, have the banks who are dealt with by separate regulators, and then you have the money laundering regulations, which are separate as well. So one of the things we all need to do is work together and try to all be singing off the same hymn sheet in order to ensure that uh, uh, that when you're down in a jurisdiction trying to fix this this problem, that you can you can actually aim at one target uh, in in order to yeah. get there. So uh, we also through and it's all a big complicated structure. We try to deal with the international body that deals with money laundering regulation, and we try to deal with the international body that deals with banking regulation in order to try to get us all to a, to a similar place. And I think in this process, it's super important that, uh, again, there are there's a set of documents that you are referring to and that you're issuing from time to time to actually make sure that the education goes right across all these bodies. And I know that I also, uh, you mentioned, is working already on one additional document, but before it published a couple of other uh, important researchers and observations. Could you talk about those uh, a little bit more in detail and explain? Yes. So one yeah. of the things, so if you think about what we're doing in relation to crypto, we're basically saying apply the same standards to crypto, but apply them in a different way, but to get mm -hmm. the same outcome. So that's our general message in relation to crypto. But then you end up particularly looking at DeFi and DeFi is really 
it's it's almost like a puzzle game to try to figure out exactly how this is similar to or parallel to uh, more traditional products or even to the ordinary crypto sector. So we've published a, a, a risk report on, on DeFi and then we've published a, a second document on principles in DeFi. And in each one, we spend most of our time actually researching what's out there and actually saying, okay, this is like that. Or you have, if you change it a little bit, it's, it's, it's more or less like that. And that, that is a, a kind of a complex puzzle or game that regulators and legislators have to go through to figure out where do we want to get to in relation to these new products and these new innovations if we're trying to regulate them to the same standard as we have done uh, traditionally. So a lot of work is like that, and I hope people like it. We've, we've sort of pulled together experts from around the world to describe what people are seeing in different parts of the world and different subsects of the uh, sections of the DeFi market. What, what do you, what do you, I, I'm sure it's a view that you hear, Martin, um, you know, the, the view that, well, DeFi is different. How can you apply principles to, you know, traditional securities markets into DeFi because it's so different? What, what, what do you re respond to that? So I, there's two parts of that. I think um, there are differences. I actually, th I, I think some of the products that are coming out of the DeFi space are actually new. They're not just the same traditional products. So some of the, for example, the lending products in this space, which automatically unwind, let's say, in certain circumstances. That's different from how traditional markets have organized lending products, where there's always been a, a, a sort of judgment call to be made as to whether you would unwind. But you know, as a, as, a, a, as a lender into that marketplace in DeFi, well, you know, if you're well informed, that it will be uh, automatically under, unwound under, under certain circumstances. So I would define that as a new product. Hmm. But there's also a lot of hype in this sector trying to tell me that various things are new that sort of aren't new. So the person who uh, organizes a marketplace is the organizer of a marketplace in traditional finance 5,000 years ago in Baghdad today, in traditional finance, in crypto. If you're the organizer of a marketplace, you're the organizer of a marketplace and you can call yourself whatever you like, but you're still the organizer of a marketplace and the same principles should apply to you. So that's why I say it's a puzzle. You've got to figure out what's really new and what's just hype. Yeah, well, here I have a, a, a follow-up question. Like, what challenges you see as the most important ones, like the most pressing ones right now in regulating and in designing these uh, uh, frameworks for DeFi regulation? I, it won't surprise you if I say it's the it's the crypto trading platforms are the big regulatory challenge at the moment. In in the sense of the volume of DeFi is really interesting because the volume of DeFi has gone down, but it's still there. There's still people trying to innovate in that space. Um, and I think there's a lot more to come in that space. But in terms of urgency for regulators, it, you ask yourself, where are people losing the most money? Where is the, the real potential for loss? And that's what you focus on. And it's these platforms which have combined lots of functions that used to be kept separate. If you think about a traditional stock exchange, they don't trade against their own uh, their own clients. Traditional uh, <laughs> stock exchange, but on these platforms, well, it, would they describe themselves as trading against? They'd probably try to describe themselves as trading with uh, their their own clients. But you know what? I think many of them are possibly trading against their own clients, and that's something you've just got to say. No, this is not okay. 
<laughs> it's really interesting. We we try and resist the urge to talk about um, too much current news, but you know we're recording this show on the sixth of October, a couple of days after the FCX trial started in the US, right? So, you know the the timing is is, uh, is sort of interesting for that comment. Um, you know, going back to um, you know, I guess some of the recommendations and principles, you know, I guess two that you touched on there, Martin, I, I read the, the DeFi um, <laughs> policy recommendations paper, I think originally came out in May and then recently came out in September. And uh, a couple of that I picked up on, one was actually that last point, which was identifying, addressing conflicts of interest. So exactly the point you make, right, about platforms that are, trading against their own users as running as well as running a trading sort of entity or, or, or venue. Um, but the second one I maybe just wanted to touch on, which again takes us back into DeFi, is identifying responsible persons, right? Whereas in a traditional financial market, the, the people that are responsible for running, you know, a traditional venue are, are, are pretty clear and laid out in you know, legal entity terms or in, you know, organizational terms and, you know, with, with regulatory, uh, often names, senior manager names, responsible names for, for, for regulated entities. In DeFi, it's, it's, it's different, right? So, you know, is it the owner of the DAO? Is it the founder of a project? Is it the developer of the smart contract? Is it somebody else? Can you talk a little bit about, about that challenge, about how do you really identify the responsible people in in the DeFi market for some of the products. Yeah, this is something that we were uh, doing some work a few years ago on stablecoins, and we realized that when we were doing work with uh, another international organization like the CP, called the CPMI, where we did work on stablecoins, we realized that everything we were saying about the regulation of stablecoins really didn't work unless you accepted the fact that stablecoins have got founders, they've got people who started them off, they designed them, they designed them in a certain way, they control where the assets are. And in the end, there's no point in pretending that uh, it doesn't matter how these uh, stablecoins are designed, that there isn't somebody in there who, uh, who isn't designing them, it isn't responsible for how they're designed. And it is the same for every single uh, uh, um, product in the, in the crypto space. And there is a kind of a range here. So if I'm a, a traditional stock exchange and somebody comes onto my stock exchange and buys an asset and loses loads of money because they bought the wrong asset, that's their responsibility. It's not my responsibility as, as the stock exchange. But if I structure, let's say, uh, the governance tokens uh, so as to give myself privileged access to information that allows me to trade against my uh, against other people on the site, then that is me doing something that actually privileges myself. I, I sometimes I think of it, it's a bit like uh, uh, the debate about, about weapons. You know, the, the one end of the spectrum, people sometimes people like to say that arms manufacturers are responsible for whatever is done with their guns. But arms manufacturers got a reasonable defense that kind of it's the person who pulls the trigger who's responsible for what they do. On the other hand, if I take a fully autonomous combat device, maybe it's a bit of a gruesome example, and release it in a group of, of, of people and switch it on, well, if it goes off and kills people, I am responsible for what it did because I released it there. So you can't simply say that because you weren't there on the spot, you're not responsible for what happened. Because you're not the frontline person, you're not responsible for what happened. A lot of organized crime legislation is based upon ensuring 
that people are responsible for things which they organized but didn't actually execute. It's a, it's a crucial part of individual responsibility in any society. Nobody's picking on crypto here, but we're trying to assert here a principle which you see everywhere else in our criminal law, in our social life, in our private life. You know, even as a parent with your kids, you'll sometimes find them saying, it wasn't me, I wasn't there. But when you look into it, sometimes actually they were behind what happened. And you have to be able to get behind the hype and the suggestion that things are entirely automated. Things are automated fine, but they're also designed. And the process of design is the critical moral, I would say, and legal responsibility of the designer in relation to a lot of uh, uh, crypto and particularly DeFi products. And you just don't get away with saying, I wasn't there, so it wasn't me. It's a bit too Bart Simpson for, uh, uh, for <laughs> the real world and real people's money. It does make me laugh when you see, you know, do your own research, everything's there. You just got to read the smart contract, right? I mean, that's sort of, you know, <laughs> it, it, really? I mean, you know, okay. <laughs> to me, that takes, uh, that's not quite fair financial promotion legislation for me, but maybe I'm just a bit too old school. I should start reading smart contracts. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Someone should. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, I mean, from a, I guess a couple, couple of final questions from me, you know, from a, from a, a vendor perspective, we're seeing more protocols trying to embed compliance into their offering. And do you, yeah, do you see that as a, as a sort of viable solution or is it the, you know, the financial products or how those products are sold being built on top of the protocols that are, um, you know where the compliance should happen do you, do you have a, a view on that you know is it both um is there anything different in DeFi and crypto than you know in in the traditional finance world so i think i i see this uh, more as an opportunity rather than an obligation it seems to me almost sort of crazy that um that developers have not thought of um, solving the regulatory challenge as an opportunity to differentiate themselves as a product. I know, uh, Marina, you're sort of in this space. I don't know if you have a view on this, but but that seems to me, and I've been saying this to, to developers and innovators in this space for, for years, that that they're, they're missing an opportunity. They aspire to get into what is a regulated industry. Why would you not design your product so as to make it easy to regulate and actually solve the regulator's problem for them? Not in a way that suits the regulator, but solve their problem for them in a way that suits you as an innovator and a developer in this space. So get yourself out of all the obligations or some of the obligations that in traditional finance you have compliance obligations, reporting obligations. Why not? find a way to do it better, easier, faster, unless you really have something to hide. If you've really, if your whole, and this is back to the responsibility that we just talked about, if your whole business model and concept is to get in, make a quick buck and get out before anybody catches you, then you're not going to volunteer to design the compliance function clearly. But if that's not your model, if you believe in crypto and its long-term potential, surely you will design a compliance uh, solution that is low cost and high efficiency and high transparency. And it surprises me for, for many years that this wasn't the case. I'm greatly encouraged by the fact that you start seeing more and more people in this space actually asking these questions. 
And I'm, fortunately, I'm old enough to think back to, to, to remember the early days of the internet, but a lot of people said things about the internet and how it was you know, quintessentially libertarian and decentralized and so on and couldn't be sort of organized and certain things weren't possible. And as time passed, um, all that proved, the, that talk back in the 1990s proved to be untrue. And in the early years of crypto, you've seen very uh, similar narratives being developed in the crypto space. But honestly, it's equally untrue. But I think the question is, do we turn the solution to that into a way for a small number of companies to have a dominant position? You lack competition, you lack choice for consumers. Or do we actually find solutions and practices and standards that enable the investor and support the investor to get a better outcome by making it easier for the regulator to actually uh, certify and support the transparency of the, of the sector. So I've gone on a little bit in answer to that, but uh, I, 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 I hear some really good things happening at the moment against the background that wasn't really that great for a very long time, it seems to me. Yeah, I think I think while the industry was driven by enthusiasts, you know, and just purely investor money, uh, we just weren't ready for that. And, you know, as a uh, CEO of blockchain analytics company, I frequently see people coming from territories where there is, uh, so to say, less trust into the regulators. And they are genuinely telling me, like, I'm using mixers, not because I'm hiding something. I'm using mixers because I don't want authorities to know that I'm actually you know, own this amount of money because I'm not sure, you know, how they will come after me and so on and so on. And, I, and I'm and i like, okay, like now we are in need of some, you know, compliant mixers, it seems. Uh, but I think the time has come right now. And what I'm saying uh, constantly is that uh, these, uh, the activity that we're seeing right now, it's powered by TradFi and there's no other way around. And uh, um, it's really interesting for me to see how even privacy design solutions like ZK Labs right now, there are projects who are trying to utilize them for compliance, actually, to, you know, to help easier work with the GDPR regulations and the other ones. So actually, like, it seems that right now is the good moment for actually, you know, take everything that has been developed for privacy and just to think how we can put this and to use it for the for the better compliance. I think it's a great sign of maturity in the in the sector if you start seeing those trends happening. It really is a transition from, uh, towards being serious about your your sector and what it can deliver. Finance is unavoidably regulated. Every time people try to develop unregulated parts of the finance sector, they end up deciding to regulate it again for the very simple reason that if one person gives another person their money, all sorts of issues arise. Trust issues, honesty issues arise, conflicts of interest issues arise, custody issues arise. And no, nobody anywhere has devised a system whereby you can solve all those issues without, without a regulatory framework. So crypto aspires to hold other people's money and use it. So you've kind of got to get rid of the program, with the program uh, 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 um, in relation to making it well regulated. But you get to pick how. And, and that's the opportunity, which I think, people, Marina, people like you and people like you're talking about uh, can be very helpful. And, and, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me, this, this part of this conversation, Martin, is, is a little bit, you know, you teaching some of our audience how all of this works. But I think that's really valuable because, you know, the builders, the creators in, in the Web3 market don't come with that background. And in a way, that's a good thing. But now they need to understand the way 
you know the way regulated industries work and the flow of the the, uh, the communication and the understanding and that actually it's there to protect society and it's there to create a safer system it's not there to stop you creating a product it's not there to stop you creating a business to make you money from your business all of that's okay right but it's about the risk and the balance of that risk against the reward so you know we're coming close. I think we've got a couple more questions, but thank you for like being patient with us and our audience and explaining some of this and some of the way it all works. I get quite frustrated because there's a whole new group of people here pulled in by this sector into the financial industry and they bring fresh eyes. But the risk here is they won't bring <clears throat> fresh approaches because they're sort of coming in backwards, if you like, <laughs> um, because, and there are very inefficient ways of doing compliance and regulation in the traditional finance sector that regulators yeah. and the traditional finance sector have all built up over the years doesn't have to be done that way. And if the yeah. innovators have the confidence to engage, then I could see things being done much more efficiently. I think that's why I'm very much aligned with regulators again. This is another point is that uh, we have a big mission of changing the mindset uh, you know, of people launching their businesses to stop dealing with the consequences and start looking forward and being proactive. And, you know, when you are in an extremely innovative space, you know, you're like bleeding edge of technology and, you know, there is also a need to look even further on and think, you know, about what happens after you deploy this or that. I think that requires like enormous courage and uh, of course enormous education from all sides but uh, but yeah i mean uh, that's that's a very important thing and i know that many regulators have also started calling in their guidances like be proactive think about future not like what you're doing right now yeah it's kind of an exciting moment though yeah. <laughs> absolutely i think we've got one perhaps time for one final question for you then martin just skipping skipping near to the end um, it seems like a bit of a crazy question to ask you what's next for Osco, specifically in the crypto and DeFi space, perhaps. You, you know, you've already mentioned how much you've got on elsewhere in areas like sustainable finance. But, you know, what is the next 6, 12, if you can dare to look 18 months ahead, look like for Iosco in the crypto and DeFi world? So I think we've got to keep looking at the DeFi world because um, I'm quite clear in my mind that DeFi is not now where it's going to be in the future. You get people talking about things like tokenization, for example, uh, not convinced that's that's uh, where things are going to end up, but it's interesting to follow those debates. We have to follow them and be ready to answer those questions as, as they come up. Um, I, I think in relation to crypto, an awful lot of the work we need to do next is about hand-holding with jurisdictions to try to get them all into a better space. One thing you really don't want as a sector is um, too much potential for regulatory arbitrage because that will harm your sector. If you have a jurisdiction that provides you with a, a low standard of, re of regulation and authorization and uh, um, innovators are tempted to pile into that jurisdiction just because it's easier and then trade across borders, in the end, that will count against the whole sector and will lead more and more countries to push against the sector and sort of think maybe we should ban it maybe we should make it really difficult because we've got some countries that are not not reaching the same standards so for us that uh, risk of regulatory arbitrage in the future is one we really want to fight against but in a strange way although i know some people in the sector wouldn't see it that way by doing that we're actually empowering and enabling the sector to to prosper and grow in the future 
um, because there needs to be public and political confidence around the fact that this sector has legitimacy, that it's not about money laundering, that it's not about avoiding sanctions, that it's not about fraud, that it's actually about trying to find new ways to get people to trade and invest. Amazing. A great, a great um, close to the show, Martin. We, I've got to thank you on behalf of Marina and I for, for coming on and speaking to us. Um, really fascinating. Hopefully you enjoyed it and maybe you'll come back in, in six months or 12 months time and give us a little status report on how you think the industry is doing and how you think those global regulators are doing as well. Love it. I mean, I don't find many aud audiences where I have to start a conversation with uh, commenting on people expressing sympathy for central banks and regulators. So you, you, <laughs> you keep that up and I'll be back. <laughs> oh, amazing. Amazing. Thank you so Take much care. for closing the show there. Look forward to uh, our next show. Tune in for episode eight uh, in a few weeks time. Okay, thanks and goodbye. Bye. Thank you.